couple of weeks ago, I mentioned an early church father um, named Ignatius of Antioch. He's an early second century Christian writer who wrote a number of letters on his way to be fed to lions. He wrote a number of letters to churches in Asia Minor as he was on his way to Rome in captivity to be fed to lions. And one of the things he writes to one of the churches is to be in a state of unity, a state of peace and accord. And he talks about uh, being in a state of harmony, and he uses musical illustrations to kind of capture that. And I think as, we, as we've gathered here so far this morning, we, we see a picture as we sing together as the people of God, as we praise Him with our voices. It's a picture, it's a very uh, vivid picture of the kind of unity that exists among the faithful. Our voices coming together in harmony is itself an expression of our unity, but it's also really an illustration, an analogy of the unity, the harmony that we have here as the people of God. So we just praise him that we have this local church, that God has been gracious to us in bringing us into his body, into the body of his son, and and that he has given us a place where we can come and given us a people whom we can call family. Today we continue our series on Genesis, so uh, if you'll just open up your Bibles and turn to Genesis 13. We are making our way through this wonderful book, Genesis 13, and today we're going to look at all 18 verses. So verses 1 to 18. I hope that you're enjoying your gospel community group time. It's a blessing. If you're not engaged with the gospel community group, let me encourage you to please do that. Uh, You may think that you're not missing out, but you are missing out. Uh, You're missing out on fellowship with the people of God. You're missing out on a very concrete way to do church, right? Coming here on Sunday, we have conversations, but let's be honest. Oftentimes we come, have a little chit chat. We sit down. There's a little bit of, hey, how are you? Good, good, good. And then we go home. Now, hopefully it's more than that. We can aim for that, but frequently... It tends to be that. And one of the things about Gospel Community Group, it gives us an opportunity to go a lot deeper than that, to talk about life, to massage the truth of the gospel into each other's lives. So let me just encourage all of us to be involved in that. But one of the major ideas that came up in our Gospel Community Group this past week is that Abraham is someone we can relate to. As we see him from last week, we saw feeble faith. That was uh, the focus of last week. We saw the faithful God and the feeble faith. The week before that, we see the father of faith. He's introduced to us as as a, a faithful man of God. And then we get this sort of falling off of a cliff with this picture of feeble faith on the part of Abram. And so we saw his independence, his deception, his recklessness. He's independent because he doesn't call on the Lord. He goes down into Egypt and there he, he concocts this plan where he's going to lie and say that his, his wife is just his sister. I say just his sister because she is actually his half-sister. But he's going to say she's my sister and that hopefully that will give him some time to, to negotiate uh, a marriage because she's so beautiful and, and he knows that there would be Egyptians who would find her quite attractive. And we read last week how 
in the midst of this scheme that Abram comes up with that Pharaoh actually notices through his, his princes bring a Sarai, his wife, to Pharaoh's attention. Pharaoh takes her up into his palace, into his harem. And so we saw there Abram's deception and his recklessness as he puts his wife on the line and he puts the conduit of God's promises on the line because God had promised that he would give him offspring and make a great nation through him and bless the world through him. And here he's being reckless with his wife, reckless as a husband, and reckless with God's promises. And so we talked about in our group how this is someone whom we can relate to. And the reason we can relate to Abram is because we also go through times of feeble faith. Uh, in fact, on the deep sheet this week, there will be a question just asking you to describe times when you have seen this in your own life. Times when you have seen your faith as feeble. But when we take that feeble faith passage and put it together with the one we're going to look at today... We see that feeble faith can be renewed. Praise God for that. What a a picture we have in the relationship of these two passages. The one we looked at last week and the one we come to today. Teaching us that feeble faith can be renewed. And so that's the title. You'll see this on your bulletin. That's the title for this morning's sermon. Renewed Faith. And one of the things that's interesting about these two passages, the one we covered last week and the one we're in today, is that if you look at the vocabulary of these two passages, both of them begin with a Hebrew word that means heavy, weighty, or severe. Now, you would not recognize this from your English translation because they translate the words differently. But in chapter 12, verse 10, we have this word with famine. So the famine is heavy, it's weighty, it's severe. And then in 13, 2, we see Abram's wealth being described as heavy or weighty. So he's heavy in wealth. So at the beginning of the first passage, we see heaviness of famine. Then we see heaviness of wealth. What's the significance of this? Well, many commentators have pointed out that these two passages... The feeble faith passage and the renewed faith passage, which we're going to look at today, have to be taken together and compared one with the other. And the result of this is we see very clearly that feeble faith in the life of Abram is followed by renewed faith. So what does this tell us? Just at the surface level. Before we go any further, I think as Christians, as the people of God, we need to know this morning that our faith can be renewed. Very basic truth. But here's the thing. I think that there are probably people here today who really need to hear that very basic truth. Because maybe... You have come here this morning and your faith is incredibly feeble. You don't just look at Abram from last week and say, I can relate to him. He's not seeking the Lord. He's doing his own thing. Even involved in lying, reckless with his life. Reckless with the people who've been entrusted to his care. Maybe that describes in some way your life right now. 
Maybe you just feel like it's, it's all dried up. I, I, I'm not walking with the Lord. I'm not seeking God. I haven't even prayed in days. Reading my Bible, what in the world is that? I haven't shared my faith. I'm not involved in any kind of discipling relationship. Yeah, I would say my faith is pretty feeble. Maybe that's you. And what you need to know just on the surface, before we even go any further into the passage that we're going to look at today, is that the the bare relationship of last week's passage looking at feeble faith and this week's passage looking at renewed faith tells you, person of God, Christian, that God can pull you out of your feebleness. He can renew your faith. So let's stand as we read God's word this morning. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 18. This is God's word. It is true and perfect, infallible, and profitable. Verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt... He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring Forever, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. 
So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. What a wonderful passage to read after last week. If your view of Abraham was shattered last week, it's a great passage to come to. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time and just ask that God would make his word clear to us and that we would leave here understanding him more through his word and understanding what he's called us to be and do more through his word and that we would walk out of here living in faith and repentance before his face. Let's pray. Our sovereign king, our heavenly father, our great God, our covenant Lord, our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. Father, we are humbled by the wonderful privilege of being able to worship you from a heart that has been remade. Father, we humbly recognize that apart from your Spirit's birthing of us, not by the will of man, but by the will of God, we have been reborn. Your Spirit has shown Christ to our hearts, and your Spirit has given us life in Him equipped us with faith and repentance and allowed us to turn unto our justification before you, God. We thank you for your mercy in saving us. We thank you that we are here this morning extolling your name. We thank you that we're here this morning exulting in you. We're rejoicing in you. We have joy in our hearts over you. We want to know you. We want to know your word. We want to read it. We want to meditate on it. God, that is such a gift. We love you, which is itself such a gift. So, Father, we just praise you that this is even happening right now. We ask that you would use this time together to equip us for every good work. That you would equip us for the good works of a heart that believes and that confesses and that loves and hopes and that you would equip us with the kinds of fruit, kinds of works that magnify Christ and that edify our brothers and sisters and that act as an ambassador before the world. Father, just be with us this morning, we pray. We know that apart from your spirit, what we're doing here just won't have any power. So God, we know that, that we are called to rely on you and to ask you to help us. So God, help us now to see you through your word, to understand it clearly and to apply it to our hearts. Would you do the work of applying it in very incisive ways in every heart? God, would you protect us now from the evil one? And help us to listen to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see in this passage for today, Abram's faith expressed in three ways. Once again, you'll see this on your bulletin. Three ways that we see 
this renewed faith working, its, working itself out three ways that we see Abram's faith expressed. So first, recognition. Second, renunciation. And third, reception. So let's look at the first of these, recognition. We see Abram's faith expressed in his recognition. Recently, during our family worship time at home, uh, in the evening, we were reading Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. And maybe as I say that, I'll give you a second. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Maybe that's a passage that you have meditated upon for a long time. It's one of the oldest passages in my memory. I was blessed to grow up in church the time I was three. And uh, looking back, that's one of the verses that just stands out to me uh, in the history of, of my life. And it's... Uh, Such an encouragement to us. But here's what it says. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Or he will direct your paths. So we're reading that during our family worship time. And my son Jacob asked a question. He said, what does it mean to acknowledge? And isn't it wonderful when... Our kids ask these questions, and sometimes they ask these questions, and, and we think we're prepared to answer them. But they ask these questions, and we, well, and we kind of stumble over our words, and we try to sort of uh, answer that question as clearly as we can. Sometimes we pour out way too many words on their little ears. But he asks the question, what does it mean to acknowledge? Such a great question. And our kids often ask these kinds of questions. Little theologians putting the world together. As they learn about God. And I think what we see with Abram. In chapter 13 verses 1 to 4. Is an answer to that question. I think we have an illustration. Of an answer to that question. So yes. What does it mean to acknowledge the Lord? Well let me show you an example of that. Read Genesis 13. 1 to 4. So let's look at those verses again. With this in mind. Verses 1 to 4. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. This is a picture of what it means to acknowledge Or to recognize the Lord. And what we see here is that it is as though Abram hits the reset button. This is incredible. After all that we've seen, it's as though he hits the reset button. There's two clues to kind of capture that this, uh, that captures for us what's going on here. We see in verse 3 these words, at the beginning. And then in verse 4, we see the words, at the first. So going back to the beginning, going back to the first, going back to the first chapter, if you will, in this portion or this, this chapter of his life. He's going back to the very first page of this chapter of his life. He's hitting the reset button. And he starts over by returning to the place in Canaan where he went right after the Lord had appeared to him. And you have to go back to chapter 12 To see that, but right after God appeared to him, remember he came to Shechem, he built an altar to the Lord, God appeared to him, and then he went on from there, 
to the place we see described here, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. One commentator, Kenneth Matthews, says that Abram returns to recover, listen to this, to recover his experience with God. That is what is going on with Abram in these first four verses. To go back to Proverbs chapter 3, Abram has just spent a period of time leaning on his own understanding. Remember those words in Proverbs 3? What is Abram doing as he goes down into Egypt on his own? without praying to God, without seeking the Lord. What is Abram doing as he schemes in his mind to come up with a lie, as he recklessly gives over Sarai, his wife? What he's doing is leaning on his own understanding. But now we see an Abram who returns to the place of his earlier encounter with God. And what does he do? We see it in verse 4. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And that tells us that Abram really returns to two things. He returns to a place and he returns to an activity. He's hit the reset button on his life or this portion of his life, really, since God came to him, made promises to him, appeared to him. And then he's gone through this period. We don't know how long he was in Egypt. We don't know how long he spent there. He sojourned there. We don't know how long Sarai was in the palace of Pharaoh. But this period of time has lapsed and now Abram hits the reset button. He returns to a place and he returns to an activity. So what is he doing? He is acknowledging the Lord as his God. He is recognizing his total dependence on The Lord, he is recognizing that everything he has, his life and his wealth, are a blessing from his faithful, protecting, promise-keeping God. Here is a man who has just come into Egypt afraid. Well, first of all, he encountered a famine. He did not starve to death. Then he goes into Egypt thinking he's going to be killed because his wife is beautiful. He's not killed. Then he comes up with this ridiculous plan, this foolish, sinful plan And in the process of doing that, Pharaoh could have taken retribution on him and killed him. That's not what happens. He could have lost his wife. That's not what happens. Instead, what happens is he comes out with all of these blessings, with all of this wealth, safe, secure. So he's recognizing that all of this comes from the hand of God. Let me say it this way, as I said before, Abram is moving from feeble faith to renewed faith. So what is the implication for us as we think about this for our own lives? I think simply it is this, if our feeble faith is to be renewed, we must return and recognize. So think about where you're at in your life right now. Is it a feeble faith? Have you been Sort of thinking, as you've been here at church, as you've been going to gospel community group, maybe, or maybe you don't go to gospel community group, as you're relating to the people in your family, maybe you just, you see that you're just dried up. There is no spiritual life, no spiritual vitality in you. I think what this suggests for us is that we have to return and recognize. Revelation 2, verses 4 to 5, 
I love this idea. Jesus is speaking to the churches. And he speaks to the church at Ephesus. And this is what he says to them. He commends them for fighting heresy. He commends them for for standing up for the truth. But this is what he says. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. And that's exactly what we see here with Abram. He goes back to the place and the heart disposition and the activity that he had at first. And Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, return, return. Let me say this. I think here we have one of the best tests for whether or not we belong to Christ. We have to discern whether or not we are truly believers. So the chances are that some gathered here are not Christians, whether you've been coming to this church for a long time or not. That some gathered here don't know Christ, don't have a new heart, do not have sins forgiven, but are in sin, living for self, undone. One of the ways that you can know whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, a truly converted, regenerate person or not, is to simply ask this question. Do I have anything to return to? Because if you have nothing to return to, you're probably not a Christian. Maybe you just sort of, as it were, slid into it and you found yourself sliding into Christian practices. You found yourself at some point just sort of sliding into church attendance, sliding into being around Christian people. And maybe someone in your life close to you, maybe your spouse trusted Christ and you just slid along with them, but you don't really know Christ. One of the ways to assess your own heart is to ask the question, do I have anything to return to? And if you can't go back to an awakening of the heart, to a new love for Christ that lasted, that persisted, then fall on your face this morning and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, regardless of the past. And if you're unsure, as I said last week, just fall on your face this morning and trust Christ. Just give him your sin and take his righteousness, which he freely offers to those who will believe. So return, but we also see here the need to recognize. Uh, Some time ago, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. We did a series on all of those chapters there in Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. Some of you, many of you were uh, remember that. And when we came to chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, we had a a two-part sermon entitled, A New Start. And what I was trying to get across as we came to those verses in chapter 7, as Jesus talks about ask, knock, call out to God. If, if you are a sin, if you being a father, if you as a father are evil and you give good things to your children, will not your heavenly father who's perfectly good give good things to those who ask him? That passage in Matthew 7 that we came to. The reason I entitled it A New Start is because in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it's very clear 
what Jesus is trying to get across there. And that is, wherever you are in your life, this is the means of a new start. He's calling out to God in persistent prayer that looks to the Father's goodness. In other words, calling out to God based on his character. In other words, calling on the name of the Lord. When you say the name of the Lord, you're talking about his attributes. You're talking about his character. You don't call on the name of the Lord without two things, relationship and recognition. You see him as yours. When you call upon the name of the Lord, you see him as yours. And when you call upon the name of the Lord, you recognize his attributes. His name stands for all that he is as God. So recognize him. Begin freshly today to pray. If there, wherever your life is, the one, the one resolve that you can make that will change the trajectory of your life is to pray, is to seek God in prayer, diligently, persistently. So recognition, we see that. Abram here, he goes back, he hits the reset button, he returns, and he recognizes the Lord. He acknowledges the Lord, just as it says in Proverbs chapter 3. But now we come to renunciation. So go to verses 5 to 13. I want to read those again just to put them in view. So we have recognition on the part of Abram. Now we have renunciation. Verses 5 to 13. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, it's incredible, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. I want that part, Lot said. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So what do we do with these verses? Well, essentially what we have here is a situation that leads to strife that demands a solution. So what's the situation? We have a mass of wealth. We have a mass of possessions, many of which are probably acquired in Egypt. God has been blessing Abram, we would imagine, all the way through. He had things as he was moving along. We saw that when he left Haran, he had things. And then when he came through Canaan, he was given more things, more servants, more animals. But then he goes down into Egypt, and we see that he gets all of this wealth from Pharaoh. So we see a mass of possessions, and among these possessions are many domestic animals, And what do animals need? They need grass to eat. They need water. They need land to roam. Verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock, 
Verse 5, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So what we have here is just a recipe for a problem. What we have here are two male heads of households with many animals, and there is limited land in the immediate vicinity. And not only that, but we also see that the presence of the Canaanites and the Perizzites, which we see mentioned in verse 7, makes the usable land in that area even more limited. So what happens? Very simply, strife. Strife, quarreling, arguing. These guys are not getting along. Maybe a couple fist fights broke out between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram. There's beginning to be a ripple in the relationship, the peaceful accord that exists in this family of Abram. And so, it demands a solution. And this is where we really need to focus our attention. The solution to this strife comes from Abram. And here we see that Abram is portrayed as a peacemaker. And James tells us, James in the New Testament tells us that being a peacemaker is a mark of wisdom and righteousness. So let me, le- let me read to you, and we, we already encountered this earlier, but let me read to you chapter 3, verses 17 to 18 from James. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So let's just let's step away from this for a second. I think there's a little bit of an application that we can make to ourselves here as we think through Abram's, Abram being a peacemaker. When we came to chapter 5, verse 9 of Matthew, once again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, that comes in the Beatitudes, and you'll remember that what I talked about there was that the Beatitudes are the characteristics of citizens. That Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is really a, a kingdom manifesto. It tells us what the kingdom is like, and it tells us what the citizens of the kingdom are like. And one of the characteristics, one of the qualities of the citizens of Christ's kingdom is that they are peacemakers. This is one of the key characteristics of the people of God. You know, my dad became a pastor when I was uh, 15. Became a pastor later in, in life, I suppose. It's later. And... You know, being a pastor's son, you see the raw reality of church life. You know a lot of what goes on. You know how people bicker and don't get along. You know how there can be, as we frequently find in the New Testament, divisive people. How there can be ruptures in relationships. And one of the things that, you know, when I was a very naive seminary student, I remember talking with my dad a lot about the church. And and I was so naive, I I would oftentimes just say, you know, especially business meetings. Those were the worst. And uh, oftentimes those would become points of, of just great conflict between folks in the church over sometimes incredibly silly things. And I used to think, and talking with my dad, I used to think, you know, if, if we could just get these people in a room and just read them these passages about peace and unity and, and reconciliation, then, then, I mean, they'd be like, oh, of course, of course, this is wrong. This is sinful. I'm acting like a pagan right now. This is demonic. 
Not wisdom from above. This is carnal. This is fleshly. This doesn't honor God. This is not loving. I was naive. (laughs) It's not so easy. It's not so easy. The truth is that Satan is always working to upset peace and unity among the people of God, even though one of the key attributes that Jesus envisions for his people, going all the way back to Abram, is that we would be peacemakers. Now, I'm very grateful. You're probably thinking, what is going on at Four Corners Church? I'm very grateful that there is peace here at Four Corners Church. I mean that. You know, in fact, I was talking with one of the elders uh, a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, this is among the elder board. We have five elders, and among the elder board, this is the most unity I've seen among elders ever in the churches. And I praise God for that. I'm not, uh, that's not a boast of us as elders. It is simply just a, a gratitude to the Lord, that the Lord has given us a spirit of unity and a spirit of peace. And that is the case on the staff here, and that is the case among the deacons and in the church as a whole. But as it should be, right, because where Christ dwells, there is a kingdom, and where that kingdom is present, there's peacemakers, not division creators, but peacemakers, and that's what we see with Abram. Abram here is a peacemaker in his solution, but what is Abram's solution? This is, this is really what you need to see. He makes a proposal, and what characterizes this proposal is renunciation, renunciation of self. Look at verse nine. Is not the whole land before you? This is what he says to Lot. By the way, in case you uh, didn't get this, Lot is his nephew. So Lot's father had died and, and Abram's raising Lot, taking care of Lot. So Lot is his nephew. And this is what Abram says to Lot in verse nine. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. What? This is incredible. This is easy to just glide right over. Sounds sensible, right? You go, no, this is incredible. Abram is the head of the family. He's the recipient of the divine blessing. He's the only reason, listen to that. He's the only reason Lot has anything. Lot would have zero, zero if it were not for Abram. All the blessings of Lot's life are derivative of his relationship with Abram. And yet, Abram gives Lot total freedom to select whatever portion of the land he prefers. This is is really incredible. So what are we to make of this? What are we to make of Abram's behavior here Well, Alan Ross, one commentator says he is denying himself and relinquishing the better part to Lot. And another commentator, Kenneth Matthews, says it this way. He is leaving his future in the hands of the Lord. It's incredible. He's just, he's giving it over to the Lord entirely. So in the last narrative, we saw an Abram who was carefully and sinfully. Let's say, see the contrast. This is incredible. See the contrast. We saw an Abram who is sinfully scheming in order to secure his future. I have to make this happen for myself. I have to make sure that that end out there is reached by a certain set of means. And I got to come up with those means. Because if I fail, it all falls apart. That was last week. But here. In this passage, we see an Abram who is so confident 
that God will keep his promises of land, that he makes no effort whatsoever to secure those promises for himself. You choose. Wherever you want to go, Lot, you go. God's got me covered. Go wherever you please. As Kent Hughes says, confident and unthreatened, he was selfless and generous. This is renewed faith. It is a life of faith that can afford to renounce everything and give freely. If you ever wonder, maybe, you, maybe you've looked up to Christians in the past. You, you've looked up to Christians in the past, or there are people that you know right now, maybe mentors of yours, people who are discipling you, and you say, man, there's a quality about them where they just trust God so much. They're so, well, they're so giving. They're so giving with their time. They're so giving with their money. They're so giving in every way. How can they be so generous? I mean, don't they, don't they lose out here? And don't they miss out here? And don't things fall apart here? And they just don't seem to worry about things. They're not stressed out trying to take hold of things. What's going on there? It is because they have surrendered their lives to God. It is because they have a faith that is so strong that it can afford to live freely for the good of other people. That's the life of a Christian. That's what we are desiring that God would do in us, that he would make us so believing, so trusting, so confident in him. That we don't have to hold on to anything. We just give generously. Not securing, but letting go. You know what's incredible about this is God has given us everything. Let me read you a few passages from scripture that really bring this home. God has given us everything in Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3.21. All things are yours. So the Corinthians are divided because they're following different teachers. And Paul says, all these teachers, they're yours. All of you. In fact, Paul says, all things are yours. What does he mean by that? Well, the same thing he means in Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You think Abraham is blessed. Mm. Matthew 5, 5. We shall inherit the earth. The other night, Jennifer and I were watching a little episode on animals that live in the mountains. These incredibly high peaks. They were looking at the Rockies. And there was just these incredible scenes of the mountains and stars. I've always loved mountains. They're covered in snow. It's just beautiful. This thought ran through my mind. All that is mine. In Christ, I will live forever on the earth. And that is mine. That is ours. As the people of God, everything has been given to us. In Christ, we will reign with him on the earth. There will never be an end to our lives. We've been given everything in Christ. Second Peter 1.3, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So for people who have everything, why are we so intent on holding on to everything? It's ours forever. So now we're free to live for him. Every day, every week, every month until we die to live 
for the glory of God and the good of others. So Abram was walking by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, as 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, and this is put in contrast to Lot. Now, Lot is called a righteous man in the New Testament. So I don't want to throw Lot under the bus here entirely. I mean, he is quite foolish, and he's not depicted well in the book of Genesis. But he is a righteous man. That's why God saves him. Well, and on account of Abram, God saves him from Sodom. We'll talk about that when we get there. But I want you to see the contrast between Lot and Abram here. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. Abram, catch this, Abram is living by faith. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw. Ooh, that land is nice. Lot chose for himself. Let's just do a quick rundown of Lot here. He is lacking in respect for Abram. He doesn't defer, and he is very quick to take the best or well-watered land. This is incredible. I mean, it, he should say, no, 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 Abram. You take the best. I'll take a little corner somewhere. Everything I have is because of you. No, he's quick to snatch it. He doesn't defer, and he takes the very best. Abram, you can have what's left over. It's terrible. He is lacking in regard for the promised land. He's quite willing to move away to the outskirts of Canaan. He knows the land that's been promised. He's, he's, he's quick to just move away from the promise. He's quick to move away from the blessing. He is lacking in discernment like Eve. Remember Eve in the garden? What pleases his eyes is what drives him. What pleases his eyes blinds him to bigger Realities. He is moving, listen to, listen to what's happening to him. He is moving among the cities of the valley. He is moving towards immersing himself in the urban centers of this godless people. And this will ultimately end in Lot living in the notoriously wicked city of Sodom. He moves towards these cities. And he ends up in the city, in a wicked city, where he and his family alone are to be spared. It's incredible. Lot journeyed east. Now, for anyone who's been coming for a while following Genesis, we know this is a major theme. We know that it was Adam and Eve who left the garden at the east side. They went east. We know that Cain went east. We know that the Tower of Babel happened in the east. And now we hear Lot. He is going east. This is not a good this is not a good sign. As Calvin says, Calvin frequently puts things so, so concisely so clearly. He says, Lot when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. That's what happened to Lot. But not so with Abram. His eyes are the eyes of faith, and it is with the eyes of faith that God tells Abram to lift up his physical eyes. So let's finish today by looking at verses 14 to 18. We've seen recognition, we've seen renunciation, and now we finally come to reception as we see the renewed faith of this patriarch of the nation, this father of faith. Verses 14 to 18, the Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. I love that. He has the eyes of faith, 
But God says, lift up the eyes of your face. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. Verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So the solution to the strife was separation. That was the proposal that Abram gave. It was a self-giving proposal. It was a peacemaking proposal. But ultimately the proposal was that they separate. And so here we read, That after this separation occurs, God comes to Abram with a word. This word from God is a few things. You can write these down if if you would like to. This word from God, I think, is a few things. It is a word of consolation, a word of approval, and it is a word of purpose. What do I mean by consolation? It is a word of consolation because Abram has just lost something dear to him. We can't miss this in the narrative. Lot matters to Abram. And we see that later. Abram will go to war with his men to get Lot back. Because Lot gets taken in a battle and we'll get there. We see that, that Abram, knowing that Lot is in Sodom, cries out to God for the people there. So this would have been sad for Abram to lose Lot in this way. This is really the last person, aside from his wife, this is the last person from his household so to speak, from from going way back to his old life, to his old family. He's the last remnant of that. Now Lot's going to leave him. So this is a word, I think, of consolation. God comes to Abram to console him with this word. It's also a word of approval. I think God is saying to Abram, what you have done in this matter is righteous. What you have done in this matter is wise. You have handled this well with Lot. You have trusted in me and not yourself. So I think it's a word of approval. But it's also a word of purpose. And Calvin, commenting on the strife that led to separation, says this, The Lord, according to his infinite wisdom, turned it to good, so that the posterity of Lot would possess no part of the inheritance. In other words, this was God's will anyway. That God is providentially working. And we can't understand this. There's always human culpability. When people sin, they're responsible for that sin. They will give an account to God for that sin. Yet, God is sovereign over sin. It's very difficult to understand. And it's the reason that many people don't read the Bible for what it says. Because there's tons of things we don't understand in the Bible. But we're not asked to figure it out. We're asked to be faithful to the message of Scripture. And when we read in Scripture that God is sovereign Even over, as John Piper frequently says, the death of his own son, as Acts 2 says, according to God's ordination, Christ was put on the cross and bore sin. The most wicked deed in the history of mankind. If God is sovereign over that, he's sovereign over every sin. How that works out, we don't know. But we see here that God is providentially working in this strife in this choosing of Lot to separate the two. 
so that Lot and his descendants are not mixed up with Abram and his descendants. God is carving off that part of the family so that he can bless this man Abram through Sarai and build a nation. So we see that it's a word of consolation, a word of approval, it's a word of promise or purpose. But above all, this is, once again, as I just said, a word of promise. These promises have already been given. Land, offspring, a great nation. But here they are filled out a little bit more for Abram. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a few details here that we need to see as God sort of reiterates or reaffirms this promise to Abram. We see that the land is identified with greater specificity. All the land that you see, I will give it to you and your offspring. As far as your eyes can see and in every direction. Do a 360, Abram, and just look. As far as you can see, it's yours. This is what God says to him. The permanence of this possession is noted. I will give, you, I will give to you and your offspring forever. And a vivid picture is given of how innumerable Abram's offspring will be as the dust of the earth. He will, one, he will tell him later that as many as the stars of heaven, and one commentator I think rightly points out that whether Abram, as he's journeying through the land, whether he looks down at the dirt or up into the heavens, he's reminded of the faithfulness of God. The dust reminds him of his innumerable descendants, and the starry sky does as well. Descendants of a nation, the descendants of all who believe. I've said this before, we're descendants of Abraham if you trust Christ. Paul is very clear about this in Galatians and in Romans in particular, that those who are of the promise, those who have trusted in the promised seed of Abraham, Christ Jesus, are offspring of Abraham. Jesus will say, That we will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom when it comes. We are children of Abraham. Though not Jewish, not Hebrews. We still have this status. And so we are part of the innumerable lot of people who will one day in Revelation be praising God that no one could count. That's wrapped up in this promise in Revelation. And then as we finish up this morning, the Lord in verse 17 tells him to move about in the land as though it is already his. And this is where we come to Abram's response. God tells him to arise and walk about in the land. What does Abram do? It can be summed up with one word, reception. He receives God's word and it is as though he receives the land. He moves through the land. Do you see this? He moves through the land in obedient faith, embracing the promise. He moves, moves south to a place called Hebron by these oak trees, this well-known place of oak trees, the oaks of Mamre. And this will become Abram's primary settlement and his family's burial site. So what do we have here with Abram? He is pictured as embracing the land of promise while exalting the God who promised it. Once again, with an altar, he builds another altar. And in doing that, we have to see this. He is claiming the land for the worship of God. He's erecting these altars. Right before this story, we have the Tower of Babel. We got these people who are building, building, building for their own glory. And then we've got this guy, Abram. He's just moving through the land like a nomad, 
a pilgrim, as he'll be, I think, described in Hebrews 11. And what's he doing as he moves through the land? He's building these places of worship to God. Claiming the land for God's glory. This is a man of renewed faith. Last week, feeble faith. This week, renewed faith. So here's the message for us. God can renew us wherever you're at this morning. Seek him. Call out to him. And and for Abraham, this involved hitting the reset button, going back to acknowledging the Lord, confidently relying on God's promises, and out of this confident reliance, renouncing self and receiving the word freshly in obedient trust. Will it be feeble faith or will it be renewed faith? Let's, Let's pray and ask the Lord now that he would give us renewed faith. Father, we thank you for these narratives about Abram. We thank you for how they hang together. We thank you for what they teach us. Father, you are so good to show us from your word that things are not hopeless this morning. No matter how dark the horizon may be, For some of us in this room, there's hope. And Father, we pray that you would renew our faith, all of us. That we would seek you. That we would return and recognize. That we would renounce self in such confidence. And that we would receive your word of promise with obedient trust. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. We beat our chest as the publican did. And we say, have mercy on us, O God, for we are sinners. We are powerless, not by might, nor by power. You say through Zechariah, but by my spirit. That's what we pray, God. In Jesus' name, amen. At this point in our service, we'll have the Lord's Supper. So if you're serving that, Let me ask you to go ahead and come forward during this time. This is a time where we get to visually see the gospel displayed for us. The death of Christ on the cross as he gave his body and his blood to forgive us of our sins. If you're a believer here this morning and not under discipline from a local church, we would invite you to come and participate in this. If you're not a believer this morning, we're glad you're here. We want to talk with you after the service. And in fact, there will be someone over here. I'm not exactly sure. Will's got it over here on this side to talk with you after the service. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to, to, to believe in him. But if you're not a believer here this morning, we would ask that you not participate in this. This is not just a ceremony we do as a church. It, it is a, a way of really professing what it is we believe, that Christ has come. He has died and our sins are covered and forgiven and we have eternal life. So come when you're ready.